Hey there, welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga. Alpha Bunga Bunga is the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. Our starting point is that the end of history, in which Western liberal democracy was held to be the final form of human government, is now over. Instead, we are seeing the crumbling of the technocratic managerialism that ruled Europe and North America until 2016. We've seen the common sense of liberal politics appended by Trump and by Brexit. We are watching the decline of American hegemony play out in regions around the world. And the rising powers everyone expected to take over have refused to do so. No one's in control. And we've seen the pundits and the polls get it wrong again and again and again. At the end of the end of history, they have nothing left to say. On this podcast, we're charting what's emerging and what comes next. With help from a range of contributors, we'll be scanning the globe high and low to understand the politics, economics, and culture of the new era. We'll have a new show every fortnight with more regular updates when events require. Pleased to have you with us. Hello, politics, my old friend. something in mind but um it's kind of slipped my mind now um what's been what's been grinding your gears this week carl oh this week um i wasn't prepared for that <laughs> <laughs> let someone get to start and I, and I come in and i come in today we're going to be discussing hyper satire reality or satire in an absurd age shortly we're going to be joined by the architect commentator and satirist carl sharrow aka carl remarks but first this Tonight on Brass Eye, are we in a state of irreversible decline? What's the reason? What can be done about it? And if there is a solution, who on earth is going to put it into action? Or is everything just great? <laughs> Look, I will say something horrible for which you will lynch me probably now, but what's the favorite type of political commentary now for liberal leftist, uh, leftists? John Stewart, John Oliver and so on. This kind of a half-joking, very arrogant, comic commentaries and so on and so on. This is the ultimate failure of the left for me. This patronizing, making fun of the ordinary people. Sometimes, I, you know, when you meet the real, the actual people, yeah, I mean, just look at the sort of beady eyes and mean mouths sort of sneering and, I mean, I know this is what they think people like me think, so I hate thinking it, but I, I just find myself thinking they're, they're from a different fucking species, you know, with their t-shirts and weird trousers and tail birds yeah. and... Yeah. Why do they wear clothes with writing on them? And why are they so fucking fat? I know, and stupid. God, I hate this place. It's tricky, and it's tricky, it's really tricky now, uh, because satire has kind of become reality and so it's it's really it's really hard to make fun of and we actually had the last season of South Park which just ended um, like a month and a half ago um, we were trying we were really trying to make fun of what was going on but we couldn't keep up you know it was like what what was actually happening was way funnier than anything we could come up with you know what I mean You 
just heard some clips there from Brass Eye, The Thick of It, and the creators of South Park talking about satire. But what's actually become of satire today? It's become a little bit of a cliche to refer to something as beyond parody, and yet we increasingly find ourselves in this position. What's satire's purpose today? The Enlightenment used satire to mock the Ancien Regime, whose authority seemed impervious to reason. With the progress of commerce, science, and philosophy, ideas like the divine right of kings or the strictures of the church looked increasingly absurd. The world was becoming demystified. Satire helped tear down those old ideological edifices. Hannah Arendt argued that laughter undermines authority, but in an age of lame daily show pokes at stupid republicans, has satire lost its edge? And if political satire famously became obsolete already way back when Kissinger won the Nobel Prize, what does that make it now? The British show created by Chris Morris, Brass Eye, aired in the late 1990s. The first clip you heard was from that. It's a remarkable, vicious, hilarious work. It satirized form as much as it did content. It was media satire as much as it was political satire. That spoke to the growing role of the media, and maybe to the growing boringness of politics as well. For me, it remains the gold standard. But just think, can one imagine a 2017 version? It's hard to know where it would go. The media itself has become indistinguishable from Brass Eye's satirical exaggerations. Have you ever told yourself while watching the news, this can't possibly be real, or asked what the hell is going on with the world? Well then, just imagine trying to satirize it. Take this recent headline from The Onion. Cop confident he'll be exonerated by clear video evidence of him shooting defenseless black man. Hmm, I'll leave it to listeners to decide whether you think that has a cutting edge. Another example. The UK's Daily Mash in 2015 ran with the following. Cameron encourages private sector to bomb Syria. It continues. Tax breaks and development funding have been made available, with Tesco, United Biscuits and River Island all considering making bombing runs before Christmas. David Cameron continued. State interference, whether in the housing market or against ISIS, is never a good idea. Compare this to these two bits of real news from a few months later. A Chinese state-owned enterprise, Costco, was to buy the Greek port of Piraeus after it was forcibly privatized on the demands of the Troika. Meanwhile, in Syria, a U.S. ally shelled U.S.-backed militia after it had attacked another U.S.-backed militia. In this context, satirizing the Cameron government's neoliberal policies and its confused involvement in Syria by putting the two together is hardly far-fetched. Why shouldn't absurd proxy wars and equally crazy public-private entanglements go hand-in-hand in in this mad world? Or if you want another example, take these tweets from the World Economic Forum, as close as you can get to a central coordination system for global capitalism. Images of leading participants were accompanied by quotes, seemingly with the intention that they go viral. An image of Christine Lagarde and a quote, We've heard a lot about the Internet of Things. I think we need an Internet of Women. Or Will I Am, whose presence alone raises eyebrows, and the quote, Let's put our optimism goggles on. One response to all this patent nonsense has been clickhole. The proliferation of clickbait, trolling, edginess, and assorted internet nonsense led the creators of The Onion to dispense with traditional satire and respond with absurdism. Clickhole seems acutely to capture the craziness of today, but you could hardly say it's tearing down authority. The philosopher Slavoj Žižek argues that in the past, Ideology had a certain naivete to it. To put it bluntly, the powerful bought their own bullshit. Today, ideology has become cynical. No one believes in it, and yet they continue doing it. For Zizek, cynicism is knowing that you are lying while acting as if you are telling the truth. 
This raises a question. How can you tear down the authority of the powerful if it all already looks like a sham? For the past 30 years, the most powerful political idea was expertise, that is, technocratic management. The powerful said, we rule not because we represent someone's interests. We rule merely to implement best practices, the most scientifically validated economic theories. That notion has now been exploded. 2016 gave us Brexit and Trump. Totally different phenomena. But what unites them is that both rejected mainstream expert opinion. Today, it might be said that we live in a situation of hyper-satire reality. Hyper-reality is the inability to distinguish reality from simulacra of reality. Hyper-satire reality would thus be the postmodern condition of the world being beyond satire. A notable case study is South Park. The creators took on woke PC culture and hipsterism in season 19. But after the 2016 US election, the creators Matt Stone and Trey Parker decided not to make Trump the target of their next season. When asked why, they said, Satire has kind of become reality. On the other hand, Ian Hislop, editor of the British satirical weekly Private Eyes, said, Trump has made satire very, very easy, which is very kind of him. We're the one industry which his policies will help hugely. This might seem a little complacent. Slavoj Žižek relays an apposite joke. In the good old days of really existing socialism, a joke was popular among dissidents. A joke used to illustrate the futility of their protests. In the 15th century Russia, occupied by Mongols, that's the joke, a farmer and his wife walk along a dusty country road. A Mongol warrior on a horse stops at their side and tells the farmer that he will now rape his wife. He then adds, but since there is a lot of dust on the ground, you should hold my testicles while I'm raping your wife so that they will not get dusty, dirty. After the Mongol finishes his job and rides away, the farmer starts to laugh and jump with joy. The surprised wife asks him, how can you be jumping with joy when I was just brutally raped? The farmer answers, but I got him. His balls are full of dust. <laughs> this sad joke tells of the predicament of dissidents. They thought they were dealing serious blows to the party nomenclatura, but all they were doing were, well, getting a little bit of dust on the nomenclatura's testicles. The question thus is, are we not in the same situation? We can undermine authority, we cannot buy into ruling ideologies, they look ridiculous, we laugh at them, the mask has slipped, and yet they still rule. Satire works by contrasting reality to self-serving and often pompous representations of it. But what if today's reality is itself absurd? Reality has preempted satire. The world has pulled the rug out from under the feet of satirists. Or is it even that the notion of reality has dissolved into the postmodern ether? That the places where satire happens, above all the internet, is a place where simulacra dominate. News, fake news, hot takes and piss takes float around, one interchangeable with another. If the end of satire is reformation, as Daniel Defoe put it, that is, the reform of absurd or offensive ideologies, what does it mean to say today that satire doesn't work anymore, that it has little purchase? Or maybe we're overstating the problem. Jesse Armstrong, creator of Peep Show and The Thick of It, said, Talking about satire feels like death. If I heard somebody go, Now I'm going to write some satire, and had to think what that person looked like, I'd think, That person looks like a wanker. Okay, so we're here with Carl Sharrow. On Twitter, he's known as Carl Remarks. Also with us are fellow Alpha Bunga Bungers, George Hoare and Phil Conliffe. Carl, um, for you, what's the point of satire? And what are you hoping people will do when you, when you make satirical interventions on Twitter and blogs and other things? So, I mean, what's, what, 
I mean, are you, are you just trying to be funny? Is that is that it? Well, I think you just answered it yourself because uh, um, <clears throat> where I want to start with it, and it kind of ties back with what I was thinking about this week, was okay, I keep hearing this phrase in the West, you know, speaking truth to power and using satire to undermine uh, power and all of these grandiose statements. And I don't see myself in that, you, you know, the label satire was uh, kind of put on me. I didn't choose it because I think in the Western context, it has these... Uh, very self-flattering uh, connotations and the best example that I can give of that is um, you know when people share something like on social media and they're like you know this um, uh, talk show host murdered Trump destroyed uh, destroyed Trump Absolutely you know he, Trump. yeah and every night he gets destroyed by like three different uh, comedy <clears throat> hosts and uh, I wake up the next morning and Trump is there again <laughs> <laughs> and it's like this kind of self-delusion why isn't this working <laughs> it's amazing i mean they're destroying him every night and he's rising again from 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 the destroyed from the realm of the destroyed and uh and so basically there's all these pretensions to it that i i never consciously you know subscribe to i i i really like came to it because uh, uh i guess you know i i like comedy i like making people laugh but i like politics so I wasn't going to do it about relationships or coffee or things like that. I just chose a, a topic that I liked, which is stomach, uh, uh, politics, and that was my entry into it. And then, you know, whether you want to call it satire or something else. And, and I'm not trying to be kind of intentionally, uh, you know, modest or postmodern about it and um, saying that I'm not really, uh, you know, out for political change or anything like that. But I think I'm very, very conscious of this uh, uh, ascribing too much power to satire, especially as so much of it is mainstream, you know what I mean? Uh, so so I'm, I'm, I'm not into that at all. I think for me it's just about trying to find, to find the funny side uh, of politics. But you started, I mean, when it kind of took off, when your own Twitter following took off, that was around the Arab Spring, or maybe as that revolution started to take a, a turn for the worst, right? So maybe there was an element there about the moment that you were able to kind of latch onto it, not not opportunistically, but it kind of, you were inspired by that moment, but also as it seemed to be um, taking a turn, it, there was a moment there to find a kind of satirical angle. So the moment presented itself, right? Totally, I think, and uh, you in particular, Alex, I think, remember, is for the first two years, I was uh, quite excited about the Arab Spring, uh, you know, I was writing seriously about it, talking about it, uh, analyzing it. And then about two years in, it was it was kind of quite obvious that it wasn't going to go where I wanted it to go uh, or probably where most people wanted it to go. And there was a, a quite a big disappointment with that. And I think my coping mechanism was to kind of switch to the absurdist, uh, surreal, satirical uh, comic aspect of it to kind of salvage some sort of connection that would be not total frustration and rejection uh, of that. Particularly, I think that a lot of people um, on the Western left, even though they were quite keen about it in the beginning about the Arab Spring, they sort of quickly distanced themselves from that and, and became quite antagonistic towards the forces that it unleashed, uh, most of which are not, I mean good necessarily we can all agree on that but i think my own thing was to kind of try to find that dark humorous aspect to it and um 
that's effectively how how I got into it. So there was a kind of a, a political element to it. But at the same time, it, it, it people started ascribing powers to it that I don't subscribe to at all. So, you know, about two years in from doing that with the rise of ISIS, I, I must have done about like 30, 40 different interviews for articles in newspapers and television stations, and they all had broadly the same thing, using satire to fight ISIS. And I'm, I was like, my response was, it's quite absurd that you think you can use satire to defeat ISIS <laughs> in any meaningful way. You know, you can mock them, you can, it's a kind of a gesture of um, uh, defiance, but it's nothing more than that. You can't really defeat them. And again, in that instance, so that a lot of the context then was, was kind of taking any sort of a satire about ISIS and elevating it and making it into this political gesture. So I was always very conscious of the boundaries of what I was doing. I guess there's a thing where, as you say, trying to take down ISIS with satires is is an absurd proposition, I think, if you put it in those terms quite explicitly. But on the other hand, I think you have a tendency nowadays as well that uh, that you have kind of easy targets, that, you know, the emperor has no clothes and people are going, aha, I've just taken off the emperor's clothes. And you go, well, he's already naked. Um, and with ISIS, it almost feels like it's the opposite case, where it's far too severe a kind of political phenomenon to simply go, aha, they have no authority, they're ridiculous. Like, no, I mean, they're, <laughs> they're beheading people, they're throwing people off the roofs, you know, it's, I'm not sure what the critical angle is there. No, that, that's quite a good uh, uh, point, actually, because, uh, again, people on the Western left, and I, I think I'm going to say this a lot tonight, and you're going to sense my hostility towards the Western left, but um, they were sort of almost protective of ISIS, you know, as if, like, criticizing ISIS is somehow culturally offensive, Whereas if you look at the Middle East, there's some really savage satirization of uh, ISIS and uh, people have no sense of limitation about it or crossing boundaries or anything that they feel that it must be done. And these are people that could be targeted by ISIS any day. And then you get some kind of Western lefty types who are like, uh, oh yeah, no, no, ISIS are insignificant and uh, we should be reserving our energy toward, um, you know, speaking truth to power and undermining people like Trump who are undermining themselves constantly. It's again that emperor kind of thing. So I think there's a, if you look at it from the Western perspective, there's a loss of sense of perspective and a loss of the um, realization of the importance of how these moments of defiance, not by myself, because I live here in London, I'm, I'm protected uh, by distance, but you have people, you know, in Egypt, in Syria, in Lebanon, who are like, very close to where ISIS is, who are publicly mocking them in very savage ways. And that's not something to be dismissed. I think that's something quite strong. So, I mean, I guess that refers to a question of bravery in, in the satire, right? Um, I mean, what sort of what sort of thing do you think works well? And conversely, what doesn't what doesn't work well nowadays, to put it bluntly? I mean, just to, to give you a little <clears throat> bit more on this, I think a lot of satire today, especially in the West, feels very complacent. It feels like it's preaching to the converted. Should you be seeking to antagonize everyone, then you find that you end up a bit placeless, perhaps. You're not speaking from any one position. So how do you kind of mediate no, that? I think there's also a question here, which is about easy targets. Often a lot of the satire we see is, you know, aims at those at people who everybody already thinks is partly absurd and doesn't really take aim at the, the difficult targets or the, the ones who are kind of really, kind of really difficult to, to, to hit. No, no, but wait, don't we don't we have to be like specific here? Because isn't the point that the um, 
the Western left is constantly kind of, there's the whole thing about punching down, right? So like you can't criticize people who are identified as being like in a weaker, more marginal, more vulnerable position, whatever. Um, and I think that's what, isn't that what you're getting at, Carl? Like with the kind of the way in yeah. which ISIS was kind of implicitly protected. Yeah. So it's the, how do you identify the, you know, how do you identify what's an easy target and what's not? Because, you know, um, for the Western left, I guess ISIS is an easy, it seemed to be too much of an easy target, while Trump is supposedly a hard target. Whereas, you know, any kind of sane, rational person can see that Trump is a very easy target um, and that it's actually ISIS who's more difficult. Um, and particularly, as you said, Carl, like in the Middle East. So, I mean, I guess the issue is how you identify what who the easy target is, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there's also the complexity itself of how you deal with it. But but I just want to kind of dwell a little bit on this concept of punching down, punching up, because uh, that particular that argument was used around, you know, the uh, the murders at Charlie Hebdo. And, uh, um, you know, a lot of uh, Western satirists or comedians or they effectively, I think, were complicit in uh, not in the act itself, but in sort of rationalizing the reaction on the basis that, you know, if you criticize uh, Islam, then this is punching down. Uh, whereas if you're criticizing someone like Trump or satirizing someone like Trump is punching up, which is uh, quite a stupid reductionist attitude. Uh, to take because um, this comes from I mean there's a very serious aspect to it this comes from uh, uh, the infantilization of Muslims in general that occurs over I guess the beginning point would be uh, Salman Rushdie and you know the fatwa and all of that there's this sort of protectiveness uh, towards Muslims as if Muslims can't stand up for themselves as if you know the same left that in the 80s fought all these battles to satirize christianity and do very offensive artworks uh, uh portraying jesus or mary or whatever they were supporting kind of freedom of speech and that suddenly there was a big shift around around islam and muslims in particular and it's like you know uh, they can't handle it we shouldn't be uh, touching any of their uh, beliefs and that's quite an infantilizing uh, attitude and that fed that whole notion which is quite paradoxical uh because on the one hand you have people saying isis doesn't represent Islam. But on the other hand, they said, well, if you criticize Islam, then you're sort of justifying the reaction of people who are affiliated with ISIS and trying to take a, a, a matters into their own hands and kind of punish those people who offend them. So I, I find that whole notion quite absurd. And there was like, in terms of the reaction about saying, you know, trying to draw this very neat line between what is punching down and punching up. I mean, the, the Saudi royal family, they're Muslims. And what if you criticize them, is that punching down or punching up? And, and, and uh, uh, there's, there's whole sorts of complexities in that. Uh, that can't be like summarized briefly in this notion and just kind of draw a very clean line. And and I think this is again of the luxury because uh, let's not just focus on satire, any form of critical speech, that free speech that's really threatening to, uh, to the current order. I feel like particularly among liberals and the Western left, there's a sense in trying to kind of manage it in a way that's very flattering. Uh, uh, to their outlook, but at the same time in kind of uh, uh, allowing it when it's directed at its their obvious uh, enemies or the people they want to criticize and then banning it completely when it comes to uh, people they sympathize with. 
And I think really the skill in satire and the complexity is to be able to uh, wrestle with those and try to find the fine line and try to find that complexity in, in, in the satire. I think that's a good point because there seems to be an effect today. I mean, this is my view that there's a flattening aspect where there's a sort of overweening literalism today where you can't understand layers, you can't understand context. And as a consequence, the question of punching up and punching down becomes flattened to a sort of global village where we don't live in a global village, we all live in different contexts. And so what might be punching up in one scenario, in one context, might be punching down in another. You might be critical of something which, if you're criticizing, it might be a marginal group in society, but within certain contexts, say within a particularly liberal or left-wing context, it might not be marginal at all, it might be quite hegemonic. And so I think the punching up, punching down distinction has to be understood according to, in relation to a specific context. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think it, it feeds into a much kind of uh, uh, deeper problematic aspect of the way the Western left, I guess, conceptualizes global struggles today. So in the old days, you know, you'd have heard about uh, um, a framework that uh, looks at uh, anti-imperial wars through a prism of national liberation. You would have thought of like frameworks in terms of uh, a Marxist solidarity. You had all these kind of frameworks. Perversely, today you have something completely different. Uh, uh, you, you have like a, a. It's almost like the production of the Muslim as the universal oppressed. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll give you an example, a very kind of concrete example of that. When you think of the barbaric invasion of Iraq by the Americans and, and, and the Brits and their allies, um, Iraq is not a Muslim country. It's not defined by Islam. But the, the way the left talks about today actually mirrors the way the right talks about it. Talks about it through the prism of a clash of civilization Probably not consciously so, because you look at the headlines and the way leftists talk about it, and it's always perceived as if it's an attack on Islam. But Iraq is not Islam. Iraq is a is a multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multi-sectarian country, and yet there's very little attempt in the Western left to talk about that about those complexities. So the whole thing has to be represented as a clash between the imperialist West that wants the oil. So goes the reductive theory, and a kind of indigenous Muslim population. So there's there's a conscious attempt to reproduce a, an indigenous Muslim native subject that's kind of far behind in modernity that I find really deeply mm -hmm. problematic. I mean, we're talking about countries. You know, Iraq was the leading country in. Uh, modernity and modernism in literature, in architecture, all these kinds of things in the 50s and the 60s, to kind of try to reduce it back to an indigenous form, because there's an inability to grapple with those complexities today uh, by the Western left. So that kind of pushes this promo promotion of the uh, the Muslim as, uh, the you know, the universal kind of uh, uh, subjugated mm -hmm. uh, person. And reality is, is quite different. So you look, for example, what happens with the Yazidis in Iraq. Um, seriously, look at the reactions in the West, and not many people care about that. I mean, you're talking about an actual rape culture and enslavement. And if that were happening, you know, in a fraction of that scale somewhere else, there would be so much outrage uh, among Western leftist circles, and somehow it's convenient to overlook it now. So there's a very deep problematic line, I think, that goes beyond how we talk about this to major conceptual flows within the Western left, I think, today, that 
to make it even more problematic, somehow mirror what the right does. I think this is a good point because it's a it's a important facet of conservative thought or a certain strain of conservative thought to reduce complexity and and put transform things onto the plane of culture and frame it between two simple cultural oppositions between degenerate outsiders or and 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 the good people here at home or however it however it's framed. And I think that's right to say that. Uh, this way of 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 losing out the complexity in especially from a particular liberal or leftist western view is really a reflection of of a kind of sort of conservative thought um to to flip you've done something which is quite interesting um which is to flip these notions around a little bit uh you do a bit which i think you refer to as occidentalism which i think is really good it's for those who are unfamiliar it's where you depict western politics in the manner that western analysts describe the middle east um, and I think this is, for Western audience, something that especially hits home, um, and that for those of us who are critical of, uh, of the way things are run in, in the West today, it kind of does give an interesting perspective and angle. But I mean, for you, when you're doing that, do you find, who are you, what's, your, what's the object of that kind of satirical intervention for you? Well, I think there's levels to it, but I think, to be honest, one, <laughs> one of the main uh, reasons that makes it successful is white guilt. It's like, it's great, you know? If you manage to tap into it, it will like constantly feed you. Oh, I'm totally white and guilty. (laughs) (laughs) So it's brilliant. It's like such a brilliant source that you can tap into. And any sort of like a a thing that you do that feeds into white guilt and makes your white audience feel like you're you're kind of giving them a pass to sort of uh, indulge in this conspiracy of narrative that you're you right we're created. so awful <laughs> yeah it's it's it's, it's brilliant it's brilliant and I'm, probably, <laughs> I'm probably gonna lose all my audience after revealing this no but there's that <laughs> aspect of it uh, but but where i find really interesting is uh, you know there's a lot of truth to like or analysis of orientalism and and how kind of you know uh, reduces its subjects and and kind of projects those uh, biases onto them but i found that with a lot of post-colonial thought there's a tendency to become quite whiny and have like a chip on your shoulder and kind of feel like uh, start to infantilize your yourself a little bit with uh, oh the west is doing this the west is doing that and um, I think when I started doing the Occidentalist stuff, it was my own way of, uh, rather than complaining about it and sounding quite whiny, I thought I could flip it. And it's quite, uh, to use a word that uh, 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 has many connotations, to kind of empower myself in a way, that I'm, I'm going to assume the position of superiority over here. I'm going to lecture Westerners. Uh, I'm going to kind of resolve their ethnic tensions, and uh, so as a comic, like, device, like famously between between uh, Remainers and, and Leavers and in the UK over Brexit, absolutely. these ancient divides, these these ancient divides that I'm I'm trying to sincerely heal because I feel so saddened <laughs> by uh, those divisions in in British society. You know, I've lived among the natives now for 15 years, and uh, I go with them to the pub and we drink the beer, and. Uh, 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 it's very enjoyable and uh, it feels quite, it saddens me a lot to see them divided like this. Uh, it reminds me of the days of uh, the civil war in Lebanon and obviously I'm concerned with sharing my experiences and, uh, you know, we are all human. It's what I say. <laughs> what I say here in Britain is what I used to say in Lebanon. We have to see beyond our 
differences you know <laughs> i i hope i hope one day you know to see uh, remainers and leavers holding hand together and singing the national anthem and <laughs> seeing their common humanity really that was all that was behind it so, so this is actually a question that, that that's on alex's list of questions that we were going to ask but do you think tw- so it just came came to my head do you think twitter has been a force for good in this in in kind of <clears throat> i guess spreading satirical views of the world because obviously you have a lot of followers on twitter if anybody's listening to the podcast <laughs> probably yours on twitter just call the rest of them. but we, there's actually this kind yeah. of serious point here which is okay so it, it's, it's quite a good way to have a, a quite a, a compressed like hot take or yes. like a satirical version of a hot take do you actually find it's it's a good way to to have a satirical like reaction to a to an event yeah. Just if I could intercede, because you've got to tell us, Carl, whether you're a 240 person or a 120 person. <laughs> this is the crucial divide, the crucial divide on also, Twitter, the, the class also, hierarchy. It's, whether it's, you have... two, it's 280 and 140. Yeah. <laughs> just, just to, as, as a 280, just to correct you there. As a solid member of the proletariat, of course, I'm on 140. And, and, and you must all know that, uh, uh, you know, the 280 was a perfect example of uh, uh, the unfair concentration of wealth that's uh, uh, attributed, you know, granted with no regard to merit. Well, I think all, we, have, we have to just like we have to transcend. Capitalism. We have to transcend this opposition to move to a greater world of <laughs> infinite characters. I think you're missing the point. That sounds, <laughs> that sounds like a total nightmare, like a horrible totalitarian, endless yeah. nightmare. No, you know, but I have a very simple answer for that because I think the problem of the whole 280, before I come back to your uh, question, George, <laughs> is, uh, uh, you know, my observation is if you have 280 characters, you don't have to use them all. <laughs> I don't think not a lot of people have actually figured that <laughs> yeah. out. I think that, that for me solves the I'm whole I'm just going to stretch my life into this space. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, you know, I tried to do, after Brexit, I tried to, I tried to do, I'll give you an example, you know, it's uh, one of my most viral things that I've ever done is this video that I did, which is uh, uh, explaining ISIS, the rise of ISIS in one sentence that kind of, you know, went on and on and on. And it kind of after about like 30 different reasons, it hadn't ended yet. And, um, and, and people generally loved it, you know, and people thought it was great and, and then the interesting thing is after Brexit, I tried to do something similar about Brexit. And then and people went like, nah, it's just a bunch of racists. <laughs> and it was like it was like clearly they were saying to me, there is no space for complexity here. You know, I tried to look at things like neoliberalism, post-industrialization, the Thatcher policies, the Reagan policies, uh, you know, the third way. Uh, Blair, I I tried to look at all the multiple strands that over a historical view, even, you know, the Treaty of Lisbon and and how the kind of the evolution of the EU went. But people were like, no, 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 no. The answer is much more simple. (laughs) And and, and actually, perversely, it ends up being like people are willing to listen to much more nuanced and complex explanations about the Middle East than they are about the West. So we literally end up with completely like flipped situations. But I think I find in answer to your question is the, the the challenge to me is how to kind of try to create meaningful satire. And that's why I'm not tweeting so much anymore and not doing that much, because how to create something meaningful that would resonate within this really polarized uh, context. Because 
that is really the challenge. And what I discovered in all seriousness is that my Western audience that I had were willing to be kind of quite open-minded and uh, uh, accepting of all these uh, complexities that I was talking about in the in the instance of the Middle East. And all of a sudden, that with Brexit and particularly Trump, that is not allowed. Yeah, <clears throat> I think a lot of people lost their sense of humour. I think that's a really interesting point, though, that suddenly um, complexity is, is not really allowed around Brexit, around Trump. These two kind of major traumas of the of liberal politics it's now actually the things which gets the greatest laughs are the kind of the just stripping it down to the most simple explanation which isn't that funny there there is another um dynamic which is that of of dankness i guess is what it's called which is to say several layers of irony so this is where the sophistication does exist which is in multiple accelerating layers of irony and the kind of continual detournement of of ideas and uh, that you have a, a meme and then you have a meme about the meme and then a meme about the meme. So I guess the question there is, to, to what extent do you think that memes and meme culture has a bit overtaken satire and the kind of traditional role of the satirist? Yeah, so um, interestingly, a few years ago, I, I started thinking about the idea of the meme because to me, the meme seemed to be like a, um, um, a kind of a cultural artifact that doesn't have an author. Because, you know, when you see a meme and you share it on social media, you never quote the author. And uh, I was like one of the few people who were kind of tried to take ownership of that. And in a very kind of self-indulgent, and not tot- not serious at all point, I was like, I'm trying to develop an auteur theory of meme production. <laughs> and... <laughs> Because it seemed to be like something that would resonate, um, but uh, it's like its precondition is that uh, you don't have to know the author. And to me, that's quite a a, a threatening thing, you know, because I could be doing things that people would take and I would get no recognition. But beyond (laughs) the individual level, there's a serious point that a culture that consumes um, cultural products that have no author no authorship, no sense of authorship, uh, it almost becomes like how we circulate proverbs and sayings and there's something of the common Mm -hmm. sense about them. Mm -hmm. And they're ultimately like, they might have been wise or witty or entertaining a thousand years ago, but they're really dull and uninspired now. And there's something of the meme, except that it goes through that cycle much, much quicker and it resonates with people. So two levels to it. One is that it's become a much stronger entity and and, and, uh, than than you know any kind of satirical work it's kind of almost like people have collective ownership of it so you don't even need to you know Mm. when there's someone puts like a funny uh, gif or gif however you say it of trump it's definitely gif it's definitely it's 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 basically yeah you know it belongs to the the multitude and 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 that is there's something quite threatening about that because I think satire and it thrives on it being an idea and there's a lineage to it and there's a sense of the authorship shouldn't be lost. So the flip side to it is, uh, and I increasingly, you know, I started by writing long blog posts, satirical blog posts, and in very end up, you know, just doing images or short videos or things like that. And I no longer write because people no longer read, <laughs> but I discovered that images could be quite powerful. You know, so I could do an image in, uh, um, I don't know, uh, I did this map of uh, um, Europe, Western Europe, where it was divided at all, like a Saiz-Picot, uh, um, 
reinvention of Europe with straight borders and divided all the countries and, and spoke to people and it went viral and it didn't take me very long to do and I probably had to write like 2,000 words and not be as funny. So there's something quite powerful about it, about the power, the, the power of the image. But I feel it's like this sense that it's become bastardized, it's lacking authorship, it's lacking ownership. There's something very destabilizing about that. I think, to, I guess, to put a counter-argument, um, because I quite like memes, um, is that, uh, and, I, and I live in a country in Brazil which is one of the most heavily memed countries in the world, I think. It has probably the most active meme culture anywhere, I, possibly more than the United States, possibly more than Britain, I think. Um, and what I, I think the positive case for it is that it is a creation of a common culture. It's a common language which we speak through. We know the images we know the image macros which we can use. We understand these things. And it's a way of popularizing even certain ideas. Um, I wouldn't go as far as to say to, that it would politicize someone or certainly not to radicalize someone. But, you know, it, it sensitizes them to certain ideas and it creates a common language. And it's a, it's a genuinely democratically created culture. Well, so, so it's like Esperanto or Emoji. It's like a, it's the, the international language of... It can't, it's stupid it's not necessarily international. I think what Alex is trying to say, it has its audiences. And in the sense, it could be not necessarily subversive, but it can have a power that uh, derives from a sense of shared meaning between quite a large number of people. And in that sense, it's quite similar to, let's say, jokes in uh, communist countries mm. or, for example, in my experience in Syria and Iraq, jokes about Assad or Saddam, which get circulated. Nobody knows who wrote that joke. They're quite powerful on that level. So on that on that level, I do recognize that. But on the other level, I recognize that we don't live in this, like, there is polarization, but there isn't, to my mind, there isn't yet ideological clarity. I mean, mm -hmm. most of my disagreements intellectually today are with the left, which is my side, not with the right. I disagree with the right, obviously, uh, quite vehemently so. But in terms of the, the, the kind of sketching out where we go from here forwards, there's large disagreements within the left. And I think... What memes do is they kind of nurture a sense of uh, complacency, a kind of a comfort about the fact that, yeah, we've managed to do this very funny meme about Theresa May. That means we're right. That means we're victorious. And to be honest, I don't see that we are quite victorious. I don't, I don't, we're nowhere near that. There's no, like, there's, there, <laughs> no, there's positive signs of things starting to move. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, I don't think reality is, is, is there. So I think they're ultimately memes when the time come and the revolution is well organized <laughs> among the masses and they become an expression of this great visceral organic manifestation of the, of the, of the, uh, uh, potential revolutionary, uh, outpouring. Yes. I'll, 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 I'll seize the memes of production. <laughs> but until then, I think uh, there's an element of um, uh, kind of seductive, uh, uh, you know, pacification about them. You know, they, they become just a tool for like distraction. Mm. That, that's a really nice point. And it would be a great point to finish on, except that I have one more question. Um, well, if this which... doesn't go well, we can just edit it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's, it's something that we touched on in the introduction, which is the question that is satire now impossible? Uh, is the world too absurd? Or do we have, do we lack it, enough political clarity and enough ideology in the mm. way that you put it to really satirize it? Um, I would describe this as a situation of hyper satiriality, which is, that is to say, uh, the situation of hyper real, 
um, where you can't tell the simulacra from the real, and that this is a situation which is beyond satire. The world has become too absurd to satirize. And I guess the classical, the obvious example for this would be Trump. The question is, how do you satirize Trump? Um, we heard in the introduction that the creator of South Park decided not to take on Trump, which would have been the obvious thing to do in season 20, um, having previously done season 19 targeting identity politics and the cultural left. And they decided not to because they felt that the joke was written already. So what do you do in that world? I mean, does that, has satire lost its edge? And just and just also to add to that, in, in the British context, the, the thick of it seems to have... Um, to just prefigured and predicted yeah. so many things which actually ended up happening. Even recently, yeah. even recently, Theresa May's um, uh, background letters falling yeah. down in a slightly less uh, hilarious way than, it, than, than could have <laughs> yeah. been that the word country could have could have gone significantly worse <laughs> for her than it did. But I mean, is this is this a real problem for you that actually the the world as it exists would have been satirical twenty years ago? So now you're forced to come up with something a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. A yeah, bit more out there. No, I mean, I did get that sense for a while, and that's why I consciously don't do any Trump material anymore. It's it's kind of so tired and banal. It's not doing anything. But I think the trick is not to fall into this pretension that satire is about truth to power and all that kind of pretense. And when you try to frame it in those terms, then you end up with this like very black and white world and you're trying to kind of do something very heroic and undermine power and all that kind of thing. Or, you know, mock rednecks or whatever liberals do these days. Um, and that's that's really crass. And that was always going to be crass. And I think uh, if you actually look for it, there's very smart satire out there today, but it's not explicit. And one of my favorite examples would be, uh, you know, the Netflix show Orange is the New Black. Uh, I think it's like the greatest satire out there today of American society. And it's, it's, it's quite it's quite well done. But it's quite nuanced because it's not kind of taking pot shots at, and it's not becoming being heroic. It, it's exposing a lot of things, it's exposing a lot of strands, but in a very, very well done way. And I think uh, there are people who have the skill to do that. It's just what we identify as satire. Satire is way too subtle than just kind of like this mock heroics, you know, like I want to destroy Trump tonight and for him to rise up again in the morning and and all of that so i so i think it's it's just we get that sense because the term satire itself has been overloaded with these pretenses but in reality there's a lot to satirize and there's a lot to satirize because the moment that we live in is quite ambiguous quite conflicted quite complex and that's where uh the real satire emerges and you think of something like uh four lions which was absolutely brilliant and did prefigure a lot of things. But that was very well done. It was very well researched. It was insightful. Uh, it kind of wasn't afraid of, you know, punching up, punching down, all of that. We probably weren't worrying about that. They were kind of on a, on a uh, pursuit of a, of a cultural phenomenon in Britain. And they did manage to frame it in a, in a very powerful satirical way and made you laugh more importantly, because a lot of people, you know, do satire and you wouldn't even laugh about it. Uh, <laughs> and it's like, what's the point? <laughs> and, and I think uh, uh, um, it's, it's not, not all is lost. It's basically, let's look for the nuance. Let's look for that complexity. And I think, you know, the, the kind of intellectual progeny of John Stewart is, 
that was always going to exhaust itself very quickly. Mm -hmm. And you see so many kind of uh, replicas today. And it's so uh, not funny. It's so doesn't do really anything. It's just a kind of a liberal opium. Why is that so unfunny? Why? I mean, you get a very small number of people who think that Mm. John Oliver is very, very funny. Yeah, see, but why is it? Why is it? This is one thing that I was yeah. was thinking about before this show. It was like there's a lot of there's a lot of very there's a lot of not great satire. What makes it so so bad? It just but because sucks. again, it's back to this context because it's it's uh, 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 you know people want validation mm. out of it, and that's what it does. And I'm, but I'm I'm still outraged by the idea that John Oliver is considered funny in America. I mean, I, I don't think I know a single British person that thinks John Oliver is is funny. But actually, I do like, I have to say, I do like this arrangement we have with America where we send them, it's like a penal colony for not funny people, where we send them our, our not so talented and underachieving celebrities. I do like that arrangement very much and I, and I hope Trump keeps it open. <laughs> America is the great Penal colony for the humorless. That's great stuff. Thank you, Carl. Um, I think we're going to wrap that section of it up. Um... Okay, so to finish up, we've got some uh, much more pressing questions than what we've been discussing. Um, Carl, you're on record claiming that there's a universal political rule that the quality of food in a country is inversely proportional to how functional it is. And that food should take priority, which is an important conclusion to draw, um, and one I think I would probably endorse, but we need to tease this out a little bit further. You've even made a very specific uh, scientific chart explicating the food versus state functionality relationship over two axes, with the top left being the Nordics, being well run, organized, but the food shit, and Lebanon at the bottom (laughs) right, um, which is supposedly non-functioning and has great food. Um, so with that in mind, we'd like to introduce a new segment called Politics versus Food. Um, so I'll, 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 it'll work the following. I'll, I'm going to introduce a politician and a food. Um, and it's our responsibility to decide which is better. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, so firstly, we have... We've prepared this sec- section a lot, listener. Yeah. Um, so firstly, we've got... Oh, listener, oh, you actually speak to him in, in the <laughs> first place. <laughs> <laughs> it could be a she. <laughs> Okay, okay, so the first one. We have Samosa versus Samosa. The first is Anastasio Samosa, who is the ruler of Nicaragua, and the final scion of the Samosa family uh, that ruled the country from 1936 to 1979, and he was succeeded by the radical Sandinista government. On the other side, you have a Samosa, which is a fried parcel from the Indian subcontinent. It's savory. Um, it's filled with peas and potatoes and onions. Um and uh, and that's the choice. What, what what's what's better? What what's more important? Oh, definitely what you samosa. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, that was easily resolved. No, I agree. No, no one, no one for the no one for the Nicaraguan dictator. No, that was the one I thought you were. I thought that was yeah. That was the one you were going for. I'm confused now. Um, no, I mean they're both good. Different contexts. If you want a, if you want a food. I mean, my, my, my main encounter with, with, with Samosa the food has been really greasy things in corner shops in London, um, in like prepackaged, and it's meant to come straight out of a deep fat fryer, and it, and it doesn't. It's just in a little package, and it's oily, and it's greasy, and it gives me heartburn. Um, and whereas I would back the Sandinistas in, in Nicaragua, um, or would have done against the 
the oligarchical rule of the samosas. I think, you know, I think at the end of the day, I'll, I, I really hate heartburn. From someone who's lived under dictatorships, dictators do give you heartburn. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll call that one a yeah, wash. Yeah, Alex, yeah. Um, the uh, we're gonna we're gonna do a couple of these. We're gonna do a couple of these. I think we're gonna keep going. We started now. Yeah, let's um, keep going. Let's keep going. Okay, so the, so the second one is um, Putin versus Putin. So the first is Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, um, and the other is a dish of fries, cheese curd, and gravy, um, which I think originates in, in in the French-speaking part of Canada or in Quebec specifically, but I think has become something like the the the, the national snack of of Canada. Um, so Putin or Poutine. George. Me. Well, as, as we were talking about before this, it's like, how can you really discuss this? What? So am I voting for one and eating the other? I mean, I would... No, you can't have your cake and eat it. This is, okay. this is really a choice. <laughs> so you have to, you have to vote for and, and eat the same one, right? No, you can't eat. No, you're not. You're not don't eat Putin. Whatever you do, don't eat Putin. <laughs> because the food If is... there's one rule in this podcast is don't eat Putin. I mean, yeah, I mean, nobody likes curds. Right. That's the, <laughs> that's contentious. As our Middle East expert, what do you think of <laughs> Dudum? That's a go. bad curd. Although pie. they are the fla- they are the curds are the flavor of the month. Oh, oh. I think that's why he's a professional satirist. Yeah. <laughs> they do this at homelessness. <laughs> I, I think I think the thing is for me with this one is that um poutine has become a bit of a hipster dish it's become quite popular you find like pop-up places oh, like in, in london um he's not yeah. um mm. he's quite short i realize he's five seven <laughs> I, I learned this the other day i was i was surprised to learn um he project he obviously you know has has his image well crafted and, and projects an image of strength um but putin is is very unpopular amongst kind of western liberal circles so I think to be properly contrarian and even more hipster than hipster, you'd have to go for Vladimir Putin over Poutine, which has become a bit Look, of a I've never tried. I've never tried Poutine, but um, and um, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but uh, there's a lot of conspiracy theories about me that I um, get paid by the Russians um, to promote their line in uh, foreign policy. And... Uh, um, I, I was actually trained at a secret KGB school satire <laughs> uh, in the old days. Uh, I, I was really, I was not funny at all. And uh, uh, I was trained uh, uh, by Vladimir Vasilev. He's the greatest KGB satirist of all time <laughs> with the explicit purpose of, uh, you know, when they realized uh, that the Cold War was going to end with their defeat, um, uh, at the same time that they hatched the plan, 30 years ago to bring Trump to power. <laughs> they had this idea of undermining Western society from within. So they trained me and a bunch of other third worldists. This is like to... slow cooking. <laughs> this is basically yeah. slow cooking. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, it's the same thing. It's like, you know how they, they, they hired Trump back in the 80s and planned the whole thing, yeah, you know, yeah. the Clinton presidency, the Bush presidency. <laughs> we had a podcast a little while ago yeah, where we did obviously. this. Obviously, the Russians have done all of that. I mean, it's 4D chess, right? And uh, they recruited us and... Uh, you know, on the first day, none of us could tell a joke. And by the end of the, uh, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the school, we were all just cracking everybody around us. And we were then sent as, you know, sleeper cells uh, to the West. And uh, um, here's the thing. The signal to wake us up all to start kind of this great infiltration of Western society that's going to bring up this 
internal destruction from within was hearing uh, the voice of John Oliver on television. <laughs> oh, yes! <laughs> I think it, it, it does sound a little bit like, uh, you know, you're surviving a soldier's of fortune if, if you had a problem, if you needed a joke made and you could find this track team of um, <laughs> 18 music plays and then I mean, roll I, in to make the... Yeah, I glorify to, it to now. Down. I glorify it now. But in practice, all we got served was like stale old Russian jokes. <laughs> there were no match, you know, for the, uh, for, for the Western genius uh, that the developed uh, capitalist humor and went... <laughs> Amazon Prime jokes. <laughs> What's so, your third one, Alex? Come so, on. so we're gonna, so we're gonna, oh, we're gonna carry. You think on. we've only got three? <laughs> oh no, we've got way more. We've got. I mean, how many puns do you think you can find with uh, with the name of a politician that sounds like a food? At least twelve exist. <laughs> <laughs> it's twice that. <laughs> okay, so uh, the next one we've got is uh, Lincoln versus Lincolnshire sausages. So this is Abraham Lincoln. American president and the great emancipator versus Lincolnshire sausage. And someone who's more British than I am, I think we'll have to explain. Everybody's looking at me, and by the way, it's British. Yeah. So Lincolnshire is a county, I think, in England. And it has those sausages, which are like... It's a pig-rearing county. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're at least 30, 30... All the West is a pig-rearing county. They're at least 30, 35%. That's, that's how we think about you, yeah. basically, in the Middle East. Racist. Your pig rears. <laughs> um, so, and, yeah. and and it's got pepper. So, so can I read Alex's sausages from the English county of Lincolnshire, which is with pepper. That's the sausages, not the, so not the county. So that is fairly yeah. formulation there. Um, so what what do I do now? Do I say which is better? But, but Phil, would you rather eat the dead corpse of Abraham Lincoln or a Lincolnshire sausage? They probably contain about the same proportion of meat. Yeah, actually, that is true. Um, I guess it depends whether or not you kind of subscribe to some kind of uh, how willing you are to buy the kind of uh, idea of cannibalism. So that if you actually manage to kind of imbibe the power of the person that you eat, I guess it depends on how much you believe that. If you believe that, then you would like, you know, kind of um, partake of the of the dead flesh, um, in order to like gain, uh, I don't know, like the power of Lincoln's top hat or something like that. I don't know. That's 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 the power you want to get from Lincoln. His top hat, not not the anti-slavery stuff, not the republicanism, just the hat, or the neck, or the neck beard, you know, like uh, the hipster neck beard. By the way, is this thing, is this quote about uh, Abraham Lincoln true, that somebody once asked him, how long should a man's legs be? And he replied, long enough to reach the ground. <laughs> is this what? a true thing or a joke? Have you ever heard it before? I've never heard that. It sounds like I've never heard that either. I, it, I mean, it sounds kind of maybe too absurdist for like mid-19th century America, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe if he did crowd. say that, if he did say that, he's my favorite politician <laughs> of all time. But the, but the, the question is that it seems too much like yeah. a setup. It yeah. seems like a setup joke, right? Would you, would you ever ask like, that? Like, who's though? asking? Who, like, what, what journalist is going? Oh, and by the way, before yeah. the. Uh, Mr. President, Mr. President, just one final question. <laughs> yeah. How long should a man's legs be? 
It's like nobody is going to ask that as a gotcha question. But it does kind of sound something that might come out of a KGB school, to be a, fair. It is a setup from your <laughs> previous training. Or a zany kind of like Today Show kind of no, kind but, of thing, which which they'd ask they'd ask someone like a president, you know. Yeah, but they they, they wouldn't have like such a sophisticated setup for such a sophisticated answer. And I have to tell you this, even if it was a setup, and he actually thought up of that reply, even with the setup, he still has my respect. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Let's let 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 let's do let's do another one, which is uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, who we discussed in a recent podcast, and sashimi, a raw fish dish. They they don't even sound like each other. Carl, so you you think we're going to cut all of this out yeah. and leave your interview in? <laughs> no, no, no. no. Cut your interview out. And it's just going to be the fun. <laughs> See, I never bought. I mean, you probably covered this in your previous uh, uh, podcast. I, I never, not only Aung San Suu Kyi, but you know, the whole idea of the, they always do that in Western media, right? They always like um, they have the anointed person in the third mm. world, you know, like whatever country you look at. And I was like, I think always in Western media, they would make it much easier if in the coverage they went straight away, like, and said, This is the good guy, this is the bad guy when they're talking about their business. Yeah. They, they have to go through the pretense, you know, and try to kind of like. And they're basically just deciding from the outside, in based on nothing. This is the pro-democracy activist. And then you, you search a little bit and you discover that that pro-democracy activist was kind of like a fascist when they were 21. <laughs> they were a Nazi when they were 22. They experimented with eugenics when they were 25. <laughs> and then when they were 26, they had a scholarship to go for three weeks to study in a conflict resolution module at Harvard or something and had a complete conversion by which it means they actually figured out what Westerners <laughs> like to hear. Then went back home to become the good guys until then, took power, and they become the dictator again, and then someone else is that 22-year-old guy waiting for a scholarship, and the cycle repeats all over again. Uh, so I think we're going to wrap up there. Thanks very much for joining us, Carl. That was brilliant. So bye from me, Alex. Bye from George and Phil. We're back again in two weeks when we'll be talking about the centenary of the Russian Revolution and to Phil about his new book, Lenin Lives. Remember to subscribe, tell your friends, catch you later.